Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And then you also had um, the Vietnam vets. A lot of people came back from Vietnam with PTSD. There was no proper treatment. Uh, they came back um, with Agent Orange. And a lot of them wanted to just go off grid. You know, they, they, they were not ready to be integrated back into society. And they couldn't be integrated back into society. And as a result, they wanted to get as far away from people as possible. And, you know, what makes Humboldt Humboldt is its isolation. Murder Mountain is a documentary series on Netflix. And we speak to director Josh Zeman. Now, do you know about the Emerald Triangle? This is a specific area in California, up in the mountains. It's got an interesting reputation. And we're going to be talking about how it funded the Green Rush, how it also has created ghost towns, and also why is it called Murder Mountain? So this is Stop and Search on Scroobius Pitch Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST, in association with LEAP, Law Enforcement Action Partnership. So here we go. Behind your barricade there's a lot to cover in this episode so why does murder mountain get its name why does it get its reputation and also how does the dynamic between the black market now interplay with the legalization and regulation of cannabis in california and across the rest of the united states there's so much to unpick in this this is both a tragic tale an uplifting tale and certainly an intriguing tale and see if i could get you if it's all right josh to introduce yourself sure uh, my name is josh zeman i'm a documentary filmmaker and uh, the director of murder map and I think my first question has to be is, did you have any awareness of this story before you start getting involved with it for, for a documentary? Uh, I had none. I, I didn't know that I'm from the East Coast uh, and, you know, our our understanding of weed is just, you know, buying something on the street corner. Uh, I had no idea. I knew that there was some places in California where they grew weed, but I had no idea that there was this unbelievably strong historical culture of growing weed and the stories that all these folks uh, faced over, you know, the course of 40 to 50 years. And a lot of people in the UK will have no idea whatsoever. People involved in the, the cannabis industry will probably know of Humboldt and what that entails in the Emerald Triangle. But luckily, we get a lot of non-initiated listeners on this. So very, well, not very briefly, you know, just go in depth into this. What is the Emerald Triangle? 
So the Emerald Triangle is an area uh, in Northern California, very about five or six hours north of San Francisco. Um, it's uh, Trinity County, Mendocino, and Humboldt. And it's these three counties, and the intersection of these three counties is where they grow a huge amount of weed. Um, pretty much no one could quite track the numbers, the percentages of the amount of weed that's grown in uh, the Emerald Triangle that's consumed by, you know, the U.S. Um, you know, it's 50, anywhere between 50 to 80 percent. And they've just been doing it for so long that their cultivation is unbelievable. The quality is incredibly high. Um, and the distribution methods, because they've been doing it for so long, have been well worked out. Now, you know, the big issue is that um, at some point, California legalized weed. And when they did that, that had a huge effect on this, what was once a black or a gray market. And you, you mentioned some numbers there, but let's, let's zoom in on those a bit more. 80% of potentially the market in America comes from, from that region. That's just crazy. That, that's, you know, raised and lowered throughout the years. I mean, once Colorado became legal, obviously that number went down. But, uh, you know, it also depends <clears throat> on uh, certain other market factors, how well the cartel is doing in terms of shipping cannabis in through the border illegally, um, and obviously, as more and more states become legal, those numbers are, are going down because everybody, you know, also does want to buy locally. And of course, um, it's just easier, less, um, less risk, you know, to, to buy or to get the weed to market from New Jersey if you're in the tri-state area than it is to drive it all the way across country, chances of getting caught. We're going to get into the how legalization has affected the region because it's such a fascinating tale. But the origins of this is is also equally fascinating. And again, I'd imagine most people don't know just how this started. So can you, it goes into it in Murder Mountain. You, you do a really good job of the backstory. So can you give me a bit of explanation on that? Well, our goal in Murder Mountain was to find theoretically patient zero. We wanted to find the first guy who went to Humboldt to grow weed. And it was very interesting because we thought we had found like the first group of people. And then, you know, somebody else would say, no, my dad's been growing it since the fifties. We think that basically Humboldt had been a kind of attractive area um, for numerous different groups because law enforcement was so weak there. And because it was just very nice for growing, you know, the microclimates, the water. And so what we believe happened is that, um, Basically, with the end of the hippies in Haight-Ashbury, Haight-Ashbury, you know, at the time, that's where all the hippies were going. And at some point, Haight-Ashbury just became, you know, completely overflowed uh, with hippies. And a lot of those people who had started and kind of were looking for the hippie dream realized that that dream had been co-opted by so many different groups and people. So they basically left Haight-Ashbury uh, a lot of them just got in, you know, their cars or their VW bugs or their buses and went on, uh, out on the road and they went north. And for some reason, a lot of them started to land in Humble. Um, there was a lot of cheap land. We even spoke to a guy who uh, had just numerous acres of, of what was formerly logging and or ranches and was selling them to hippies for $50. You could get 
uh, five acres, uh, some pipe and some seeds, you know, and, and that was, that was it. And so they started to go up there. They started to live off grid. Um, so no electricity, no running water. And they started to build these shacks basically, and these farms. Um, that's one group. So it was the hippies. Then somebody said, oh, the hell's angels did it in the 1950s. There was rumors out of San Quentin, the prison, that uh, Humboldt was a great place to go if you wanted to uh, get away from it all. And then you also had um, the Vietnam vets. A lot of people came back from Vietnam with PTSD. There was no proper treatment. Uh, they came back um, with Agent Orange. And a lot of them wanted to just go off grid. You know, they, they, they were not ready to be integrated back into society. And they couldn't be integrated back into society. And as a result, they wanted to get as far away from people as possible. And, you know, what makes Humboldt Humboldt is its isolation. So it was the perfect place to go, both for the hippies because of its isolation and for the Vietnam vets. That's what I was going to say is that the, the, the conjoining threads of that is that ultimately, whether it was the Hells Angels, whether it was Vietnam vets, people were looking for seclusion and self-sufficiency. And would you say that the terrain of, of the Emerald Triangle in general and Humboldt provide that? I mean, that's what it is. I mean, you, you, you always, we always ask the question, why? why? Why Humboldt? Was it the unbelievable microclimates and the hills and all the water that ran around it? Was that why weed was so, grew so well here? Is that why weed became so popular? Or was it something else? And, and we got a bunch of different answers, but a lot of people said it was the isolation. And that isolation led to a lack of law enforcement. That led to a bunch of people um, growing weed. And the other thing is, is the isolation allowed them to, to continue to grow over a number of years. So they were growing kind of interrupt, uninterrupted for 20 years. And in those 20 years, they became unbelievable farmers. And it, and it spanned over that grow time, didn't it? it? It actually went into what we call the war on drugs and Nixon's announcement into the war on drugs. They were doing it before that happened, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, it was all kind of happening at the same time. I was told that Nixon was a big reason why they all wanted to go and just get further away from the reach of the American government. You know, Nixon was 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 very kind of tried to get in everybody's business because of, you know, what he perceived as threats. And he tried to, the war on drugs, go against the hippies, which we now know was a, a fake war. And so they responded by basically going even further off grid into these completely remote areas and the one of the conjoining themes again was self-sufficiency so it was a brilliant line in it from one of the vietnam vets that said yeah we went up there to get away we grew our own vegetables we created our own housing it was in a magnificent structure that was a was it an octagon or or, or it was which again you you've got to see the show just purely for that alone um and one of the massive components of self-sufficiency is growing cannabis and that is, it was kind of that basic, wasn't it, that they got started that way? Uh, one of the guys that we spoke to, a guy named Doug Fur, you know, he had gone out with a bunch of people. They were trying to start a commune. They went and built this octagon house. Um, there's some unbelievable shots of these guys literally naked wearing tool belts. And it's just, it's just unbelievably funny at the same time. And, you know, they were self-sufficient. They wanted to grow their own vegetables. And weed, they never were growing weed 
because of its you know financial uh, aspects. They were growing it as part of one of the staples, you know, tomatoes and weed, because every now and then you want to smoke a little weed. And it was only because of Nixon's war on drugs and all the different tactics that the American government used to stop the production of weed did suddenly this plant become very valuable. You know, they were originally, they were just like, they would grow weed and they would give it to your friend at Christmas. Hey, here's a pound of weed. Uh, because it really wasn't worth that much. But then when the American government started to crack down on weed production, most specifically uh, in Mexico with uh, the Paraquat, uh, they were basically um, spraying uh, insecticide in uh, Mexico. And that actually ended up driving up the weed prices. So suddenly these hippies are realizing that what they used to give like jam at Christmas suddenly was a more valuable commodity. And suddenly, you know, there's a really interesting part at which the guys like one year, you know, we were getting 500 for a pound and then the next year it was 750 and then the next year it was a thousand and then 20, you know, 1250, 1500, you know, and it was all because of, interestingly enough, all the tactics that the government used to stop weed production in other places. What was it like trying to find these characters? Because, I mean, one of the, one of the, we, We'll get into it in a minute, but and again, this is going to be really difficult for me to conduct this because I don't want to give away spoilers, if in quotation marks. Even though this is a, we've got to really hit home. This is a true story, all of this. So I'm I'm trying to be sensitive on that as well. But the characters that you discuss and you interview and you you put a disclaimer up that some identities have to be changed. How did you find these people? Because it must have taken so much research, surely. It, you know, we we went into the community. We didn't know anybody. Um, and we were in humble and everybody after like three weeks of, of not really meeting anybody, they said, Oh, you got to go down to Garberville. That's where it really is. So then we moved down to Garberville and I guess it was our, our very, I guess, organic desire to tell their story, you know, and very legitimate. And, and we were generally all amazingly interested in what they had to say. And I guess that convinced them after a while that we were, legitimate. Um, I remember we were all, uh, it was a very funny story. So we did a number of different episodes, right? We did, I think, eight episodes. And so you kind of map out your eight episodes beforehand of what you think the story may be based upon your research. And so we went into a hotel room and we had a huge wall in the hotel room and we put on, we put on note cards all the scenes out of eight episodes. So I guess it's like 144 note cards. And we kind of left the door open because we want to meet people while we were going through our story, putting on some music. And every now and then some guy would like be, you know, come like walking along and he, this is in the hotel. He would like come walking along and he'd like dip his head in and say, oh, what are these guys doing? What's this going on in this room? And every now and then we would say, hey, come on in, check it out. And they're like, what are you doing? And they're like, well, we're making a documentary about um, Humboldt County. And they're like, huh, you know, and they would and they'd be like, would you mind if I look at the wall? And we're like, yeah, sure. And we'd put our little historical events on the wall. And the guy would look and be like, mm-hmm, yep, that's right. Mm-hmm, yep, yep, that's right. And one guy goes, well, the feds would never do this. And that was basically our entree. Once he said, you know, no law enforcement agent would go through all this trouble to like to, to bust us. You know, you guys must be legitimate. And then he said, OK, meet us tomorrow and we'll start taking you around and meet all the all the players. 
So was there trust issues before you, you start getting involved with them? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, they were they were very concerned, obviously. Legalization was there, but I think what they were looking for was someone to tell their story in an honest way and explain to everybody that, hey, just because weed is legalized doesn't mean it's good for the grower. You know, in fact, you know, in a lot of ways, it's very difficult. And they were overtaxed and, and over you know, the bureaucracy was crazy. And I think they wanted somebody just to tell their story. And, and, and previous to that, the only like weed shows were like, you know, Snoop Dogg rolling up a joint and being like, this is amazing weed, you know, so nobody was, nobody was telling their history. And that was what we wanted to do. And the history is both, a, is a fascinating one. You know, there's an opening, the opening line is, of the show is, you know, no other, I guess, um, in the war on drugs, you know, no other, um, can't remember what the guy says, but you know, no other war against the U.S. government. There was no other war against the U.S. government in which you know the members of this foreign group, basically the weed growers, they won. Mm. You know, they beat the U.S. government at their own game, and, and and that's a pretty incredible story. I've made so many notes watching it because I've watched it twice now, and and I think I've got about probably. 17 18 pages of notes because like you said there's so many good quotes in it and i think i probably got it the one that you're quoting somewhere written down here um but you, again you're right what what I, it's a good time to get into it now but it's interesting that you film this i think i'm right to say over the course of essentially the legal legalization process and how that affected the growers on the ground is, is that correct well we had gone up i i do a lot of true crime so we had gone up uh, about some theoretically like there were a number of missing women and we were looking at that story and it was like the, there was an allegation that there was a serial killer up there and so we were looking at that story and then we realized mm, there's not really a serial killer it's a bunch of different women who are who are being who are who are killed all having to do with weed but there wasn't really serial killer but while we're there and speaking to people we're hearing these stories of these growers who are all folding up shop because they can't afford to go legal and and at that time in in like it was we were like two months away from 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 all these growers like having to like either submit their paperwork or feel the wrath of the government coming down upon them. And we realized, oh, this is amazing. We have an unbelievable opportunity here to see this community in change. You know, we, we compared it a lot to Deadwood uh, in the show, that HBO show Deadwood, the the train comes to town. It's trained, the train is being built and it's coming to town and Deadwood is now going to be on the map. And so it was like that. It's one event uh, that changes a community. And, you know, this was, was legalization. And so it was so fascinating to watch how this community dealt with this complete change to their lifestyle, you know? So, so am I right in thinking then that you, you did start off as, as you said, true crime? The fact that there are so many missing people in that area in the Emerald Triangle—it's—it's it's just mind-blowing the amount of people that just go off the grid, murdered, presumed, and also a lot of open cases still. You know, there's still a lot of unsolved, isn't there? So is that how it started? But you also covered the legalization process just as because you were there on the ground. Yeah, I mean, you know, missing person cases. Uh, I did a film called Cropsy originally, which looked at some missing kids in my hometown. So I was always into missing person cases. Uh, the numbers are a little bit misleading. Uh, a lot of those people, like the numbers are really high of missing people, but a lot of them are people who want to grow, go off the grid. 
um, you know, as they say, you know, Humboldt's a place to go if you want to hide, you know. Uh, so it's a lot of people who go missing, who want to go off the grid. A lot of kids go up there to, to trim and then they realize their phones don't work and they can't get back down the bottom of the base of the mountain. So you get a lot of hysterical parents from like, you know, New Jersey calling up the police and saying, my child is, is missing. Um, you do have a lot of missing persons, but, you know, it also does have one of the higher. Uh, oh, and the other problem is that people, they'll make a missing persons report, but they won't. Um, once they find that person, they won't then call the police and say, hey, guess what? We found we found the person we were looking for. So it, it that being said, there's still a high amount of missing people, but the m- numbers are a little bit inflated. You mentioned that people go up there to trim. There's a great, I, I must admit, I'd never heard of it, but there's a great expression for this of trimigants. And it's, it's that's perfect, isn't it? Because that's what, as you said, that's what that region is for a lot of times is people want to get involved in the industry in some sort of way. So they go there to, to, to you know earn their stripes. But there's been, and it's covered in, in a documentary, There's there's been a lot of problems with that as well, isn't there? There's a lot of, because it's still fundamentally unregulated in the area, there can be a lot of times that drug debts come in or just general debts, payments and things like that. So vigilante justice can start to take hold. Yeah, unfortunately, when it's unregulated, you know, um, it's a lot of uh, people who don't have many uh, rights. You know, if you're coming from, you know, the East Coast and you're just like have a backpack and you're like, you're basically at the mercy of these growers. And, and for the most part, 90% of them are, are lovely people. But, you know, with every hippie grower, there's a cartel grow, you know what I'm saying? Or there's a Hells Angels grow. And maybe those guys aren't, you know, uh, as up as on the up and up as the kind of hippie parents. I mean, I got to tell you, we met like families who have been growing weed there and and they're lovely. Like it, it's like going to grandma's house, you know, and at the end of it, they would be like, do you want some weed to take away with you? Uh, you know, it was like getting pie or like or like cookies. And they're like, oh, honey, get get him the, 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 the strawberry kush, you know, and it was just like these were lovely, lovely people. You know, and then there were the, you know, the, the cartels. And so you're putting yourself in a bad position. It is an illegal industry, you know, and especially for the women going up there. there there's all stories about women uh, being forced to trim topless or being asked to trim topless. And, and it's just like, you know, if you're if you're an outlaw and a criminal moving from one kind of criminal act to maybe the other isn't that much of a move you know what i'm saying if you're if you're gonna you know do meth or whatever or sell weed or something like that and you're a criminal you know um sexual assault isn't that big a move was there any time that you felt in danger you and your crew specifically we had guns pulled on us numerous times oh wow um thankfully everybody watches netflix and they were very once we were like we're with netflix they were like okay uh but yeah i mean it's there's a lot of growers leave kids up there to to protect the grow and there's all these horror stories of of groups coming in and gangbangers coming in or or just like stick up groups coming in and robbing them so they're very nervous whenever a car pulls up and and they'll pull out the gun you know um but thankfully um 
once they realized we were a documentary crew and weren't there to bust them, they were they were okay. We really tried not to go to any place without an introduction. And you, you cover it in the documentary the way that you head into the Emerald Triangle and, and Humboldt and the way that it looks. It it does look like a strange Wild West ghost, ghost town in some areas. Would you agree that deprivation is certainly on display? It's like a mix between Twin Peaks, True Detective, and, you know, uh, Deadwood all in one. It is, it's beautiful, by the way. Like, I, I think that there's a perception in the show that we're kind of really kind of poo-pooing Humboldt County or like not showing it in the best of light. And I think the reason we did that was not for sensationalism, but to show the truth of what's going on there. If we wanted to show, if we wanted to do a, uh, you know, a show about how beautiful and amazing Humboldt is, you could totally do that. And when, when the show was over, I, I vacationed there. You know, I went back there to, yeah, it's beautiful. It's amazing. It's lovely. There's so many great people. But the point of the series was not, you know, we weren't doing a travel show about, you know, cool place to vacation. You know, we were doing it about, you know, the weed industry and how it's not, you know, this big hippie dream that everybody thinks it is. And, and logistically, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because it, it gets pointed out in the documentary that the reason that that area is, is, is so good and, and affluent for, for marijuana growing is because it's at altitude, it's got good sun because it's California, and it almost replicates you know, the, the conditions in Pakistan in the, in other areas where cannabis is indigenous. And, and again, that hadn't occurred to me. So is it is it purely because of the land and how, how good it is for growing cannabis that it's become such a big industry? Or is it the case that because of the the economics of the situation that's become the the main driving force um i think it's a number of different things it, it was it was the isolation which allowed these wheat growers to become really premier growers you know they you know years and years of uninterrupted growing allow someone to be you know to really like do strains and everything and so their weed is just unbelievable so the lack of law enforcement that allowed them to be good growers also the number of growers that was another big thing like at some point you had 15,000 growers in a community and and people are trading secrets and 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 working on each other's grows and sharing tips so that was another one um and everybody wants to outdo the other about you know it's a marketplace right so everybody wants the best weed so you know i think people were always staying up late and you know just being the best growers that they could be so that their product could be so good um and so the lack of law enforcement the the kind of the numbers um the community i mean people like running classes on growing weed or like the best you know organic way to to ferment you know and and of course, the microclimates. Um, there's one story as well that I think changes a lot, was a big game changer. And we luckily managed to find the three people who told us that, you know, they were growing um, a lot of the, uh, the indica. But then, you know, these three guys went to Pakistan, uh, got the sativa, you know, a, a pound of sativa seeds, you know, sewed them all into their clothes and then came back. Uh, smuggled in these uh, seeds and then were able to um, put basically hand a pound worth of seeds out up and down the, the coast, you know, and really, you know, changed, um, changed the climate there. And, and then 
I think the other part, it was, you know, the creation of Sense Amelia, you know, um, basically um, uh, growing out the seeds that also helped change uh, the community and, and made their weed so good. And it's, it's interesting what you say about law enforcement, because it is a continuous theme throughout the documentary, because for the most part, it was hands off. But as you can imagine, in the I think it was the early 80s, wasn't it? There was an attempt at an eradication program. And can, can you describe how that went? Sure. Uh, you know, the, it's always been cops and robbers up there. And it's always been like a what they say, a whack-a-mole, which is the game, you know, where the, the thing pops up and you hit it with a hammer and then another one pops up. And so there's always been this very kind of um, antagonistic relationship between the growers who don't really see themselves as criminals. They're outlaws, meaning like, you know, they're not really doing bad. Uh, it's just the government is is wrong and it's, you know, legal, you know, making weed illegal. So first of all, morally, they think that they're on the right. And I, you know, we could, we could say they are on the right, but, you know, the important thing is, is that they feel like they have a strong moral imperative to grow weed. Um, and then the cops are kind of against them and it's back and forth and back and forth. Now, in the early eighties, um, one of the big watershed moments is Operation Green Sweep. And that was where um, we were going after cocaine in Latin and South America. But I forget who it was. It might have been Noriega who was meeting with Bush and said, you, you keep coming after us for our drugs and our weed. But look at Humboldt County. Look what they're doing up in Humboldt County. It's happening in your own backyard. And Bush didn't even know about it. So he went in and suddenly he brought you know, hu a huge military movement to eradicate weed. That was big, posse comitatus. You, you had American soldiers fighting against U.S. citizens, which is technically not supposed to happen. Um, so you had that big moment, and that was a watershed moment. And then, of course, just what's called CAMP, the Campaign Against Marijuana Production. Um, and this is you know, a bunch of kind of SWAT-type guys go against the growers. The irony here is that they're using like Huey helicopters and they're you know, they're flying in, you know, they're, they're repelling down ropes and they're slashing and burning crops. You know, it, it was, it was like a terror campaign. Um, even worse were the Vietnam vets, the Vietnam vets who went and tried to escape the war and they're growing up in these mountaintop, you know, hills and, and these kind of bunkers. Suddenly, you know, one morning, the sound of a Huey helicopter you know, comes over the hill and they're coming after them. And so I was like, oh my God, that was the worst. That's literally the worst thing you could do for a Vietnam vet who is suffering from PTSD and probably has an M60 underneath his bed. You know, suddenly it's like Rambo, you know. So it, it was really, you know, the tactics were very severe. Uh, the Huey helicopter, the, the helicopters would go in, they would fly really low. It was terrorizing, like, you know, for, for the U.S. population. And, you know, there's a lot of stories of, families you know huddled together and crying as like the u.s government comes in and just like you know lays waste to their crops that was what struck me specifically is that you made a really good case of how children and families were affected by this because most people if they're if they've not got much of an idea on on how marijuana trades work and drugs trades work they just think oh it's the big guy it's mr big you know it's the scarface of the issue but it was families wasn't it these are communal um residencies that are just full of various different kinds of demographics but families were affected 
the numbers that when you look at the numbers of like the kids, so basically there's this culture of silence with the kids. You know, even though they're all growing weed, nobody's admitting it to each other. And so the children are taught to basically never tell anyone what your daddy does for a living. That creates a culture of silence. That's you're living a lie whether, you know, it's weed or what have you. And when kids are basically forced to lie and live in this kind of like shame world, it has a really interesting effect upon their well-being. Um, high rates of alcoholism and, you know, drug use and everything like that because, you know, you're, it's a culture of silence. And it was really tragic. There, there's been studies done even by kids who live up there about what happens to all their friends and everybody in their community. Now. There was a time when you had all these hippies and they're growing weed and they're making a ton of money. They're living off the grid, um, which means they are putting money into, for example, solar, uh, solar power. And one of the, the, the big solar movement of the United States, a good part of it came from Humboldt because these guys were living off the grid, which so that's amazing. Uh, you're so far away. So. Again, law enforcement is about two hours from you. So if you're uh, in a car accident, uh, if somebody is, you're in a fight with a neighbor, if you've been stuck up, good luck having law enforcement come and rescue you. It's not going to happen. You've got to fend for yourself. So there's a lot of guns. Um, and a lot of these people didn't want law enforcement to come in because then they would see the weed and bust you. So if there's a domestic dispute, you're not going to call the police. You're going to handle it yourself. Because you don't want the police to come in and see they're growing weed. So there were a lot of hippie communities and they were so flush with cash that they started to put all that additional money into social services. They, they weren't getting social services from the government. So they created their own. So there's an unbelievable story about all these hippies who suddenly are making all this money and they are starting radio stations like KMUD. They are starting healthcare, homeopathic healthcare systems, which are which are what everybody wants to do now. They were doing it, you know, thirty years ago. Um, community centers, um, uh, schools like Montessori school systems. So there was just it was really for a while there. It was utopia. They weren't paying taxes on their weed, but there were advertisements that said, "Pay your taxes." And then they listed all the nonprofits that you were supposed to basically give back to, uh, which is why Humboldt has one of the largest number of nonprofits in, in, in all the country. Uh, and all of it is done with weed money. And, and not, not, yeah, that, that was one of the most fascinating parts for, for me on this documentary is that yeah, I, I, again, had no idea of just the amount of self-sufficiency and in, in giving back through self-taxation there was there because – you're right. Like, as you said, there was just so many different enterprises. And I mean, this is what you really want as a, as a citizen, U.S. citizen or any citizen. You want to know where your tax dollars are going. And they were literally like they would like put like, OK, you know, two hundred dollars goes to the school. One hundred dollars goes to the radio station. Fifty dollars goes to the library. Like literally they were in and also being just like diligent and good citizens, like better citizens than regular Americans, because you know, they're, they're not grumbling about paying their taxes. They're happy to do it because it's going right back into the community. One of the most interesting things is because they were so far away from health services, they had to deliver their own children. And at the time, there was a movement in the United States against home, home birthing. 
but these guys went against that movement and they really started to get back into the home birthing movement and literally you know again one of the big everything that's very popular now medulas and everything like that that was started up there by this community they, it was even so much so that they the name of this place was called the outlaw birthing center and wow. <laughs> and it was just like it was just like they were so ahead of their time uh, with all everything that they were doing they were also using that money to fight the logging companies you know one of the big you know logging movement anti-logging movements started in Humboldt because they were so um, strong into that the irony is as we became so much more popular it kind of broke that hip it, it, it was a t it was a, a tidal wave that basically drowned that hippie dream and turned it into something else so for a, for a system that worked so well for so long it seemed at what point did it start to fragment and start to get a little bit darker good good question it was a number of different things in 1996 uh, weed was $5,000 a pound and suddenly you had that um, because of the AIDS movement in San Francisco they were really into decriminalizing weed and it became a gray market it became this thing where you could grow weed if you had a, a medical card and you're only supposed to grow a certain amount of plants. But of course, what behind the gates, they were doing huge grows. So once they, basically it became a victim of its own success and and basically uh, a legalization attempt that only went halfway. If they would have fully legalized in 96 rather than half legalized, we would not have all the I don't think we would have had all the violence that we had but it's called the um the green rush uh like the gold rush but it was the green rush around 96 and that was when Alsi had a change in generation the kids of the hippies were now old enough they didn't have the same value system and as a result everybody just looked at each other and said let's go big and that's what they did all these little there was also this idea that like you you grew just enough just enough that you didn't, you know, you know, when the police were flying over, they didn't see a huge grow, so they were only going for the huge grow, so you kind of kept your grow small. Uh, but I think the greed and the change in guard uh, and the prices going up, that's when the green rush happened, and that's when everything flipped. And, th and this is why it's particularly fascinating, because what you covered with the 2016 full legalization there were supposed to be emplacements so that the people of the Emerald Triangle were looked after so they can get involved in the legal industry. But unfortunately, it didn't quite work out that way, did it? No, I mean, there was... You're talking about a lot of money. You're talking about... We was basically seen as, I think they were saying, like, you know, like, of your disposable income towards uh, sundries, like alcohol, tobacco, candy and weed and i think weed was going to be number was going to supplant number two you know it was basically going to be on board so you're talking about billions of dollars in an underground economy and i think what happened was um once the legislation started to go through the legislation was not created by growers it was created by politicians so that's one thing um farming is a very difficult uh, production, you know, schedule 
you, you don't know if you're going to have a bad growing season. So I can't tax you on how much you're going to make. I can only tax you on how much you can make, you know, uh, the scalability of it is very interesting. And so for example, when the legalization was going to happen, they were always saying, okay, well, we'll, we'll make it so that there's no way for certain grows to be a certain amount of acres, you know, one permit, five acres, that's it. Well, suddenly about a year later, that went out the window. And that's when the small growers, the mom and pop growers realized that they were screwed. That meant suddenly you were going to have huge fields of grows in southern, more Southern California in like the agricultural world, Salina Valley and things like that. You were going to have large scale mass production grows and that was going to kill the mom and pops. And it was big business, you know, it was big business getting in there. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's a lot of emotional scenes where at these assembly meetings where people are meeting the, you know, essentially the, the policymakers, they were saying, you know, there's people in tears um, saying that we can't survive anymore. Yeah, we've got to make some decisions whether we get out of this. That must have been difficult to, to follow that part of the story, surely. It, the mom and pop growers, I mean, these are the people who won the war on weed. They did it, you know, generationally. They fought the camp. You know, they fought the government, um, whether legally or illegally, whether, you know, just or unjust, or, you know, or whether they did it with class or, you know, not. Um, they fought the government. They won the war. And then suddenly, once it's legalized, big business rushes in and basically kicks them out. And, and that's very sad. Uh, that, it, you know, it was it made people cry on camera, like at a drop of a hat, because you were literally seeing these families who put so much and they love weed. You know, they want they they're hippies. You know what I'm saying? Like this is their dream. And it's so true because what you was pointing out in the film is that the people that did win the war on drugs essentially they're now excluded because of 
what taxes and permits and all these other things that they now have to you know jump through so many hoops is that process still as difficult yes yes it is so here's the other part of it yes there's the mom and pops but then there's like the 15,000 growers who said okay I'll apply for a permit and while my permit is in process I'm gonna grow as much as I can you know and I'm never even gonna go through the process so when the cops come I'll just say I'm in process but I'm still growing illegally. So for every mom and pop that's getting screwed, there's a criminal out there who's trying to game the system. Game the system. You know what I'm saying? So it's not all the man and it's not all bureaucracy. You know, there's a lot of people trying to game the system. And you make the good example as well that there's there's some people that are still choosing very consciously to go down the black market. They don't want to go down to the white market or even exhibit in the grey market they're just going out and out still stick into the old ways of no we're just going to do this our own way is there still risk for people like that both risk to the state because it might make a mockery of legalization but also a risk to them and the criminal uh, and the criminality that comes with that of you know of course you know legalization once everybody knew the numbers and once legalization kind of reached uh, a logical maturity, meaning like the, the government like went through all its growing, California state went through all its growing pains and said, okay, we've got a system that works. Once there was a system that worked, it even turned growers who went through the legalization progress against, you know, against the black market growers. You had neighbors ratting out neighbors. You know, They're like, it's not fair. We went through all this work. You know, our grows are OSHA compliant. You know what I'm saying? And it's not fair to have, you know, a black market grower next door, next next to you. Uh, you know, there's also just some who are just never going to trust the U.S. government. I mean, it's not federally legal. So logically, why would you write your name down on a piece of paper, tell somebody you're an illegal grower to the state of California and what if in five years this whole experiment fails? You know what I'm saying? Jeff Sessions wasn't, you know, at the time wasn't going to legalize weed. So why do it? You know, there's a lot of reasons why not to do it. You know, what if suddenly you couldn't afford the permits, but you had already submitted their, your name so they know who you are and you can't, you know, that was another one, right? You know what I'm saying? So there's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't want to go legal. Um and a lot of people who choose not to. I mean, you know, it's it, it, it it's still a criminal enterprise. You know what I'm saying? And and they were saying that it was going to take how long did how long did um, American uh, uh, temperance movement? I, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember what it, what it's being called. How long did it take for you know liquor to become legal in the United States from that moment in which they made liquor liquor legal? How long did it take to really work out the kinks? You know, it must have taken ten years. And so they're saying on the weed side, it's going to take five, six years to work out all the kinks. And there's a lot of people who are going to be left by the wayside, you know, in that time. And there's a lot of big business going in. And the interesting thing is people think that that big business is Coca-Cola and Anheuser-Busch. Not really. Until it gets federally legal, they're not going in. The big business that these people are against are the, are the five lawyers from Chicago who have pulled $10 million, or the, you know, the, 
the angel investors who have put you know twenty million in. It's the middle people that that these people are fighting, not not the huge corporations yet. It, and there's a lot of people that make that example in the films that the prohibition era is it's alive and well now exactly the same model that was happening in the 20s of al capone and we use this analogy a lot we almost overstretch the analogy but it's it's all there for you isn't it this is still going on and still within that exact same model you, you could chart it but you know I, I you know i can only imagine how bad prohibition how bad it must have been during prohibition to watch you know, it, it, it happened. So like also California is in a no-win situation. There's no way you can make legalization a smooth process. Okay. There's no way. It's too much money, too many people, too huge, too many outlaws, you know, people who for twenty-five years, you know, the US government was or the California state government was their enemy. And you're asking these outlaws who whose sworn enemy, you know, is you know the government to suddenly tr go down to the to the to the station and write their name on a piece of paper like it's not going to happen like that you, you know you you need some serious i think what you needed was you needed a lot more you know uh community leaders to really like work with the people and i think you needed a lot more um amnesty rather than than what happened this is where I have to draw examples to what's going on in Massachusetts because I think they're learning the lessons from what's going on in, in the past and what's going on in other states where they're trying to do social equity programs, making sure that the, the people that, you know, essentially the people that were the Humboldt growers of Massachusetts get involved in the industry, which I think is going to be a growing conversation. It's certainly a conversation we've got to be wary of here in the UK as well because you know, we've got to learn from the lessons that you're pointing out. But you interestingly draw law enforcement into this again. Because one of the, towards the end of, and again, I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but towards the end of the films, the interesting twist, as we mentioned that there was eradication programs, there's almost now a cry for law enforcement to go into the Emerald Triangle. There's the residents saying there's not enough. That must be a strange situation to deal with. You know, it's, it is interesting because I think law enforcement is so limited, they only have a number of resources. And there's some places, I mean, I think you have some of these towns which are kind of run, the cartels are a big, whether it's cartels, and you have to be careful about cartels because the idea of cartels, that conversation becomes co-opted by the immigration movement. So for example, somebody is like, it's a cartel. Well, I actually spoke to one of the guys and what it was is the guy tells me a great story. He's like, oh man, you know, they thought it was this cartel. Well, guess what it really was? One of my growers is Mexican. And he has a whole, and he brought his whole village up to do this illegal grow. And it was, they thought it was like a whole cartel and it was just a village of people all co Russia coming up to like help this grow. So it's not necessarily cartels, but so, but there are cartels. And, you know, the law enforcement really has to make a decision. Are we going to spend our time, you know, enforcing weed, uh, providing the regular services, you know, or, you know, a lot of it is like, are we going to help? Are, are we going to save a bunch of illegal drug dealers from their own success? You know, why should we? You know what I'm saying? Some of the scenarios that you you heavily um, managed to get on screen, and again, I'm, I'm struggling to talk about this so that I don't give away the stories because these are real life stories, but the vigilante justice that comes with someone having been murdered for... 
uh, a debt that or, or or a payment hasn't taken place, and then they police themselves, and that that has become almost like a national story, hasn't it? Of a certain incident, uh, I'll use his name, Garrett Rodriguez. He, this is the the story that you focus on, and yeah, it's just it's again just mind blowing to be able to spectate that of what's going on. How much of that did play across the national stage? Is it well known? The vigilantism, uh, having to, well, I think to be honest with you, we could have told the story without him, but you know, the mandate was to do true crime, you know, and and I felt that this was this was a great Garrett Rodriguez story was a great microcosm of what was wrong with the industry and the, and the destruction of the hippie dream. And so it was a great microcosm of the problems between the residents and the police shown in a microcosm way. And also the idea that, you know, Humboldt for me, when, when I learned about that story, I said, how could this happen in the United States in 2019? This is like a story out of the old West. And Again, that played with the whole outlaw mentality. That played with 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 the weed stories and and the outlaw world and the, and the morality of the community. Um, and it also kind of like it was just a, it was a great story, you know, and showed a human face to to, to everything that was going on in its most extreme, you know. Because again, you you speak to the parents um, who are just completely distraught with what's gone on. I mean. Garrett is a missing person. We won't go any further than that. You know, you generally watch Murder Mountain to to find out what the story is. It must be difficult to interview someone like that that's been through such raw emotion, having their child missing for so long. Well, the interesting thing is, um, that's one problem. That 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 is a horrible thing, and obviously, a missing child is very important. But maybe would it be worse knowing that the person who killed your child is still out there? And you couldn't, and you couldn't do anything about it. Like, you know, from a, a dad who has to like, if you knew your son was murdered and he knew your son's murder and the police weren't doing anything, what would you do? Exactly. It makes so much sense. And I can't believe that I've nearly had you for an hour now. <laughs> this has gone so quick. There's so much I could ask you. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to start to wrap up now. Um, but I, I need to ask, where do you think it's going to go from this point? I know that's such an open-ended big question, but do you think that the growers can get legitimizing on their feet or is it likely to get worse? I don't think it's going to get worse because I think we saw it probably at its at its worst um, because we saw it in that initial transition period, but it hasn't gotten better yet. Or, or, or We're only now seeing like four or five years of, of that process um you know we were just lucky to be there at, a, at an incredible moment in time and witness those events um i think tragically uh more and more big business will get into weed production but the other part of it is like for example humboldt just signed in an appalachian deal which means like wine a certain region gets tagged as being a provider. And so the point of the point of all this is like there are those people who will be okay buying their weed like a pack of Marlboro, you know, where you don't really care what you get, you just want to get high. And then there's those people who, who really appreciate, like fine wine, cannabis and all its different strains and everything that it does. And I think that's an important part. And that's the key to Humboldt's success. Humboldt 
unfortunately, is still, amazingly enough, its legislature is still conservative. So I think they need to embrace marijuana, not as a as an evil to be moderated, but as a, a great, you know, as, as medicinal, as all the wonderful things that marijuana can and should be, you know. And until the government takes it off its, its class one, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it still it's not a class one drug. And, and so until that hypocrisy and that stupidity is fully worked itself through and until it's federally legal, you'll still have these problems. It's, it's just, it's incredibly short-sighted. Uh, it's, it's incredibly politicized and it's so behind the times, <laughs> you know, to their own detriment. There's a brilliant line that someone says, and I can't remember who it is, but it's essentially, and I'm going to paraphrase, is that what the government tried to do for years through the war on drugs and eradication, which is essentially wipe out the marijuana growers, legalization has now essentially done that that was what someone said and it was so powerful that that came from the voice of someone on the ground that was growing is this going to be a an, an a federal lesson do you think that this is going to be a conversation that the, the states are going to need to learn from generally as you go forward with the processes i i think so you know un unfortunately it's not going to be the understanding that weed is you know a a a, a medicine it, it, that won't be what turns it around. What turns it around will be the money. You know, when people see, you know, how much you can make uh, by taxation, you know, and, and the irony is, yes, you know, it took, you know, market forces will unfortunately prevail in our market, you know, when you have that much money. And so that will be the ultimate predictor of whether it's a success or failure. There's so much money. Uh, in there. I mean, look what happened to marijuana stocks, right? Speculators came in, you know, blew up the stocks, and now the stocks are getting slammed. Uh, so it's about the power of the dollar, not about the medicine. And that's the tragedy. And I just hope that, and the goal of the documentary is to show, you know, this, the, the power of capitalism, you know, and how these communities need to work together. And also, like, the guy smoking at home needs to know where his weed is coming from, and he can't just – like, that I think is the real goal, right? Is like, hey, you know, when you're smoking your weed, like, make sure it's from a, a purveyor, someone who really cares about what they're doing. Make sure it's from a mom and pop, you know what I'm saying? If you – you're obviously passionate about your weed because you're doing – you know, you're going through, you know, jail time probably to smoke it. So if you're going to go that far – you know, buy it from a great place, you know, and you could do that if you, if you take the time and you take the resources. And these people, they really care about weed. They really, really, for them, it is their life, you know, as being a proper grower. That's definitely an interesting point. Going forward, would you say that responsibility lies with the consumer? Absolutely. I mean, because that's the, that, 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 what, whether the, whether the responsibility lies with the consumer the consumer is ultimately going to control that purse string. You know what I'm saying? Don't rely on, you're going to rely on the government to like do the right thing. Like, no, that's not going to happen. You know, whether it's my government or your government, we can't rely on the government. I wish I would rely on the UK government more than US government to do the right thing. But, 
you know, it's slightly better. But, you know, the point is at least is like you cannot rely on the government to do the right thing. I mean, it was staring them right in the face. They absolutely had the perfect opportunity to protect the small mom and pop grower, and they didn't. So don't rely on the U.S. government to do that. Rely on the consumer, you know what I'm saying, to, to, to do the right thing and, and, and rely on the companies to do the right thing. Are you still going to be following this story uh, as a as a, a private interest? Do you think that you're going to keep constantly keep an eye on what's going on with it and how it progresses? Yes, and the reason why is because there are there are some so many wonderful people up in Humboldt who have um, dedicated their lives to this and to watch them to watch them be forced out is, is tragic some of the most tragic things I've ever seen. And it's really, you know, the American dream, you know, and, and it's a combination of the outlaw dream. And, and so I'm, I'm interested because I love these people, you know, I admire these people for what they've done and, and they deserve my attention. Uh, but, you know, always interested in, in the cannabis world and always interested in trying to change that conversation. Well, I genuinely can't thank you enough, Josh, because, again, this has been an hour, and it seems like it's only been 10 minutes. So thank you so much. Murder Mountain is something that I genuinely recommend everybody watch. My other half is watching it with me tonight, and it's got her hooked. She's going to be... She's she's pretty sick of drug policy after being with me for so long, but she's now going to be watching that. So thank you so much, Josh, for joining us. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I'm pretty sure you'll agree with me that there's a lot to unpick after that episode. There's so many different aspects that you, you start putting away at one string, something else comes along. So thank you so much for Josh Zeman for stripping that back with us and talking about Murder Mountain. And while we're on thank yous, thank you so much to the producers of this show, Tristan, Nikki and John. Thank you so much for all you do. Thank you to John Harris at the Distraction Pieces Network. Thank you for my name is Ad for all the artwork you do. Thank you all the Distraction Pieces Network. Make sure you listen to them. And thank you for listening, subscribing, downloading, sharing and giving us some nice reviews. We've had some really nice reviews lately on iTunes thank you so much for everybody that's done that and also make sure you follow Leap because this is in association with Global Leap this time so if you want to find them on Twitter go at Police for Reform and of course we'll be back with another episode very very soon on Stop and Search so thank you so much for listening bye behind your barricades yeah but how long can I stay Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.